By way of introduction, I just want to say that there are actually many confusions in thinking, in thinking about obesity. And I think that is largely because there are many different ways of thinking about it. And these are summarized in a, a, a paper that um, I published in 2007. And the problem with having many different ways of thinking about obesity is that this represents different disciplines. So the idea of thrifty genotypes is represented by um, evolution biologists and uh, geneticists, because ultimately genetics has an evolution basis. Uh, the idea of 50 genotypes was first postulated by Jim Neal, an anthropologist at uh, uh, University of Michigan in the 1960s. And that's remained a good vehicle to think with in relation to, to obesity. But one big problem is identifying 50 genes and uh, identifying the mechanism by which 50 genes operate beyond the in the past uh, uh, humans were, uh, had to deal with scarcity and therefore people who had thrifty or efficient metabolisms were more likely to survive. That's the easy part, the difficult part is actually pinning that down in different human populations. <coughs> Secondly, the idea of nutrition transition, Barry Popkin at the University of North Carolina, um, who's, who said that you know, when societies modernize, uh, in the last 50 years or so, they're exposed to many foods they've never been exposed to in the past. Many of them are high in sugar, high in fat. Um, there's a desire to consume these foods because they're palatable. And so intake of these things increases. And so you see obesity emerging in places like Brazil, like India, Malaysia, uh, you know, many of the, the emerging economies. And then you have the developmental programming idea. Uh, by David Barker. That is, children who are born at low birth weight, who are then exposed to a, an abundant environment, are then more susceptible to so-called diseases of civilization, uh, coronary heart disease, diabetes, stroke, hypertension, but also obesity. And in this paper, I put developmental programming as a subset to nutrition transition because you can't be born at low birth weight and be exposed to an abundant environment at one at the same time. There's a temporal dimension to this. So you may be <coughs> of low birth weight, um, as in um, being born in, in <coughs> British society in the 1930s. Then there's economic uh, change, economic improvement, that leads to an abundance of all kinds of resources. And therefore, the people who are predisposed to obesity can then have the expression of that obesity as environments become more abundant. In the absence of an abundant environment, the predisposition cannot be expressed. Then there's the idea of obesogenic environments, which has uh, uh, become quite a common currency when talking about obesity. Put forward by Boyd Swinburne in 1999, it's now you know, talked about very, very freely. Uh, the obesogenic environment of Boyd Swinburne is an industrial city called Geelong in Australia, which is one hour away from Melbourne, uh, which is, um, you know, has a, you know, there, there, there's a strip land with, you know, McDonald's and the, the various kinds of fast food chains. 
um, there is there is you know there are petrol stations. The opportunity to move around without using a motor car is increasingly limited. And I could see how Boyd Swinburne could come to that formulation because the campus he worked on was actually in Geelong at that time. So I, I see that city as an interesting place because it's the place where just you know being you know his fieldwork was actually close to campus. Um, and that idea has, has taken hold. But then again, obesogenic environments are very easy to characterize in the broadest frame. But to pin them down specifically is much more difficult. Not everybody living in an obesogenic environment becomes obese. People negotiate them differently. And so it's important to unpack them and say, well, you know, if migrants from Mexico to the United States are suddenly exposed to different new obesogenic environments. That's not the full answer because individuals have agency. They use what's around differently. People negotiate environments differently. So at the macro level, that's an attractive idea, but again, as with the idea of thrifty genotypes, it needs to be pinned down. <coughs> then you have food behavior models. So these are psychological models which uh, claim a certain degree of universality. That is, humans are predisposed to find palatable foods that are high in sugar, find palatable foods that are high in fat, and practice food behaviors in individual and social contexts that make it difficult to undereat and very easy to overeat when there's plenty of food around. <coughs> so humans are social feeders. The way that food is presented in modern society, in obesogenic environments, if you will, uh, can predispose to overeating. Psychologists know very clearly the buffet effect. There's a lot of food sitting in the kitchen just there which will emerge in less than an hour's time. Food of great diversity, uh, which constitutes the human sciences Friday lunch. But this is a buffet, and what people do generally is they respond to food diversity and respond to food novelty. So if you put out one thing, people will eat a certain amount and they're more likely to respond to satiety signals. If you put out two things, they'll try two things. If you put out three, they'll try three. If you put out 20, they'll try to try 20. This is just what humans do. In that sense, operating in not too dissimilar way to, to many non-human primates. You know, they're responding to to ideas of novelty, to the look, to the smell, and so on, and 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 uh, uh, consuming on that basis. And then finally, have political economic models, which attempt to look at the upstream factors, political systems, as they create those obesogenic environments in which individuals and communities need to negotiate. Now, each one of them claims some truth. Individuals in each of these domains will claim, some individuals will claim the majority of the truth. The reality is that none of them can claim all of the truth. So an issue is that there isn't a meta-model of obesity. That is a major problem. Until there's a meta-model of obesity, we really can't come close to resolving the issue. It's a complex problem. It's a wicked problem. This is how the problem is constituted politically um, and, and economically by the foresight system. There's over 100 factors that cause obesity. You can find 
the foresight, just Google foresight, foresight obesity, you would find this map, you find different pieces. Basically, it puts the physiology at the center. At the periphery, you have dietary habits and physical activity. At the other axis, you have control and psychological ambivalence, because, of course, you could institute control, but you can be ambivalent. You say, I shouldn't eat that cookie, but I will. That is ambivalence. One way in which you can deal with ambivalence with respect to consuming alcohol, for example, if somebody is an alcoholic, is simply take them away from the context of alcohol. But you can't do that with food. With food, you've got to eat. So you can't actually deal with ambivalence in the same way with food and obesity as you can, as you can with um, other forms of uh, other types of addiction. And I'll come on to the addiction issue later. Um, this systems map falls into a number, creates a number of domains. Energy balance influenced by food consumption and activity. That's the easy bit, so-called. But then you have psychology, biological underpinnings, genetic underpinnings, predispositions, um, which modulate consumption activities. Some people can eat a lot and will not become overweight or obese. Uh, they may not be hugely physically active. They are the people we all hate because they can very easily just get by in life and, 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 and maintain a healthy energy balance without having to work at it. The majority of the world's populations, if they want to stay slim and they're exposed to too much food and they can afford it, have difficulty keeping it down. So there's a discipline involved in keeping weight down. But around this, we have the food production, activity environments, societal influences. All of these things modulate individual, um, individual behaviours. You can't eat obesogenic foods if they're not available, if they're not there to buy. You can't go for a walk if you're surrounded by freeways or if the environment is extremely dangerous, or you perceive it to be dangerous. Uh, you're more likely to overeat if there's a, an acceptance and a positive attitude towards high levels of consumption, as in, as in, as in, in some societies, as I talked yesterday about you know, uh, uh, Iran and, uh, and uh, you know, the culture of hospitality and generosity in Iran, where you cannot avoid eating a meal if, if, if you're there. It's simply rude not to eat something. And there are many societies like that. With respect to these different models of population obesity, I did a little exercise which was to see to what extent do these different models, thrifty genotypes, nutrition transition, developmental programming, obesogenic environment and food behavior, map onto the political economic system? And the answer is, it's very patchy, as you can see. This obesogenic environment seems to be the most encompassing one. The nutrition transition one fits different parts of the map. Food behavior fits certain parts of the map. Um, developmental programming sits way down here in, in biology. So even if we were to say the most all-encompassing map of obesity that tries to pull in as many of the factors it likes as it can, <coughs> it doesn't, other, other models don't map onto it. So that's a major conceptual problem. <coughs> The major conceptual problem is that uh, you need people of different disciplines to be talking to each other to be able to start to make those links across that map. 
to speak to the title evolution, physiology, and behavior. Let's start with, with evolution. Okay, we've all seen maps like this, um, you know, the so-called primate, you know, evolutionary march to, to, to progress. Yay, we get here in the 1950s, and then we get to the year 2000. Well, somehow we've evolved either very big brow ridges or baseball caps. Uh, what's the point? What's the point of body fatness? Why are humans such a fat species? Much has been written about this. This chart shows percentage body fat at birth of different species. At birth is a good time because there's minimal environmental manipulation of body fatness. 15% body fat, humans are fatter than guinea pigs, seals, uh, sea lions, reindeer, and then we get the primates, baboons, but also chimpanzees coming at about 3% body fat. And the potential for body fatness in humans is enormous. If we were to meet our potential for body fatness, we could all become um, uh, extraordinarily uh, obese with body mass indices of, of, of over 40. What's the point of that? Well, at its most simplest, it's insulation. Body fatness insulates um, um, the core of the body and therefore reduces energy loss, reduces, uh, reduces heat loss. <clears throat> we have other ways to insulate, of course, these days. We wear clothes. And so we encultured the idea of, of fat and, and insulation. But as, 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 as neonates, newborn infants need, uh, need body fatness. We need body fatness across our lives um, to be able to, to, to insulate our bodies. You know, we could do it two ways. We could be furry mammals or we can be fat mammals. Uh, both of them are, 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 are good adaptations. But in an evolution perspective, this insulation isn't in respect to the environments we sit in now. Rather, we need to be thinking about, you know, where do we find uh, human and, and hominid evolution happening? And if we believe, as I do, an out-of-Africa hypothesis for human, human origin, then we need to be thinking about insulation more in seasonal environments, daytime, nighttime variations, rather than the kinds of winter-summer variations that we see in these, these, uh, these upper latitudes, because these upper latitudes happen later in the, in the human story than the, the evolution of, of, of insulation. Thermogenesis, that just means generating heat. Uh, the first proper job I had uh, was working for a man called David Hull, uh, who was the guy who identified brown fat as having an important metabolic role in humans. He was a bastard, but he was really good, but he knew a lot. He was hard to work for, but he knew a lot. Um, and my first job involved cooling down babies and seeing if they produced a, a thermogenic response to cold during the night. It was one of the worst jobs you could imagine because it would stay up all night and if the baby woke up, the experiment was over. Uh, the babies were all clinicians' kids and yes, we signed off forms and all the rest of it, of course. And oftentimes we had clinicians sitting and watching. The point was that the babies are able to, to turn on the heat if they get cold. Newborn babies, you can drop a baby onto ice and it would, within moments, generate huge amounts of heat, burning off its fat by metabolizing, uh, metabolizing brown fat, brown adipose tissue. The question we had was, at what point does brown adipose tissue switch off? Because in the 1970s and up until the 19, early 1980s, 
brown fat was an explanation for obesity. Some people may have more brown fat, others have less, and those who have more brown fat are the lucky ones because they can eat and they just burn off the energy. Uh, but actually, adults have very little brown fat. Um, the animal model that was used, the rat animal model, um, uh, the, the rats persist in, 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 the, in the, their content of brown fat, whereas humans lose it very, very quickly. Anyway, kids lose their brown fat within one year of age, and they lose that, that advantage. So it's an advantage to having certain kinds of fat. And the mechanism is through the dysregulation of uh, uh, oxidative phosphorylation. So there is an equation which is uh, one mole of NADH generates three moles of ATP. Those of you who've got a, you know, some, some biochemistry in your, in your past. Um, but that kind of dogma about how much ATP is produced from, from NADH isn't quite so straightforward. There are some people that actually generate less ATP per NADH, and by generating less ATP, the surplus goes in heat. That surplus in heat is, 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 is this thermogenic effect. Okay, what else does fatness do? It's an energy reserve. So, if you overeat, you can keep energy on the hoof and you can mobilize it when you need it. It's like having money in the bank. Uh, reproduction. Fatness and fertility is a, is a, is a long-told story. Women fatten more easily than males. Uh, and the critical fat hypothesis of Rose Frisch at Harvard was that once you get uh, uh, below a certain level of body fatness, then reproduction largely switches, switches off. This has been very difficult to pin down, but it has an element of truth. And the relationship is, is an endocrinological one. Because at the time that Frisch was working, this wasn't clear. But when leptin was identified as a, a fat-regulating hormone, which was produced in adipose tissue, then the story started to link together. Because leptin is also a reproductive hormone. So fatness and fertility do indeed go together. Um, and fatness has become, adipose tissue has uh, been a bit of a demonized organ, even among the scientists. But now that there are adipocytokines, like adiponectin and leptin, identified uh, as being uh, produced in adipose tissue, these regulate inflammation. Uh, adiponectin regulates inflammation. Um, it uh, regulates uh, insulin resistance. Um, Fatness has a very, uh, a, a very clear and important role. The other thing is that we measure obesity by a very simple and crude metric, something like body mass index, weight over height squared. And up here, we've got somebody who's lean, a body mass index of more than 30, and be defined as clinically obese. And you can be a pear-shaped obese person, or you can be an apple-shaped obese person. This is simplifying everything down to the most basic level for, for the sake of public health. So anybody can understand it. But really, the mechanism is down here. If you're an apple-shaped obese person, you have high risk of diabetes and metabolic syndrome, because what you're de depositing is intra-abdominal fat. Subcutaneous fat is less important. Subcutaneous fat is storage fat, it's less metabolically active, uh, and is less associated with, with, with chronic disease. So, the metric body mass index itself is imperfect. It doesn't actually really measure what you really want to know. 
and it's been argued that really you should be measuring waist circumference because this is still a crude metric, but it comes closer to measuring what you really want to know, which is the health risk associated with, um, with, with visceral fatness. So not all fat is the same. Okay, moving on to the physiology. This is, yeah. Okay, this is just a, a, a flyer that uh, the local health club puts out, and I put that on there. But it kind of summarizes in very lay form uh, the, the, the issue about energy balance. I'm so glad I spent 10 pounds on the Pirate Fitness Summer Program. 10 pounds? You could have bought 20 donuts for that. Well, you have a choice about what you do with your money. And in celebration of this being my last lecture, and this being the last day of term, um, I just want to... Uh, with apologies to Chaucer, just go through a little poem. It's almost a digression, but it isn't. It leads into the next thing. Uh, Bill Bailey, who knows Bill Bailey? He's a comedian. Yeah, okay. Uh, my daughter was watching him on YouTube, and uh, this came up, and I thought this might be useful in the lecture. Anyway, with apologies to Chaucer, three fellows went and into a pub, and gleefully their hands did rub in expectation of revelry, for twas the hour known as happy. Great <laughs> bottles of wine did they quaff, and had a really good laugh. Till drunkenness held full dominion, for twas two the price of one. Yet after wine and mead and sack, man must have a mighty snack. Great pasties from Cornwall, Scottish eggs round like a ball. Great hams, quail, duck and geese, they sucked the bones and drank the geese. Grease. Okay, it goes on and on. Um, it, it finishes by saying what a good night it was. Uh, it felt so bad. Uh, the relevance of this, if you're about to go on a drunken spree um, uh, on, uh, on the last night of term, avoid the kebab van. Okay? <laughs> avoid the kebab van, because it will do you no good. And here's the science behind that. Uh, there's a metabolic hierarchy. If you drink alcohol, alcohol, believe it or not, can be classified as a nutrient, because it contains energy. Okay, if you think of it as, as a nutrient, it contains energy. But the thing is, it's the worst of all sources of dietary energy because you cannot store it. Alcohol is not stored in the body. You have to get rid of it. You have to metabolize it. You have to do something with it. So there is a hierarchy of use of different macronutrients. You need to oxidize that first. So you've gone to the pub, you've consumed 10 pints of lager, you're feeling great, and you're ready for this huge snack. You have huge amounts of alcohol that needs to be gotten rid of from your system, which will take a good 8 hours or 10 hours or more to, 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 to come out of your system. You go to the kebab van, you consume huge amounts of fat, some carbohydrates, some protein, and you know what's happening to your body? You're getting rid of the alcohol while your body's not even recognizing the fat that you just put into your system because of this, all of this cheap meat. Because your body can store fat easily and doesn't recognize, doesn't metabolize fat uh, until other things are metabolized preferentially. We have low stores of protein, low stores of carbohydrate. We cannot store surplus protein if we consume it. Um, unless we are extremely physically fit and physically active. But even so, the potential additional storage is low on a daily basis. But the potential to store fat is enormous. So you've been to the kebab van, you've drank your 10 pints of lager, you've consumed, you've consumed your, 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 your kebab, 
you can't store very much protein, very much carbohydrate, you wake up the next day, you're still getting rid of alcohol from the system, and you've deposited a great lump of fat from, uh, from, from, from the thing you've consumed. So I said, don't do it, Just don't do it. Don't drink 10 pints of lager to start with, it will affect your judgment, unless you didn't know already. So the metabolic hierarchy is important, and not to consume the fat. Really, I mean, it's not a decision I would make, really, as a rational person. Its relevance in relation to, uh, uh, to food consumption, however, is, is important. This is a kind of energy consumption versus satiety um, that's been uh, well, uh, well, well thought out. If you're consuming uh, just a small number, small amount of additional, car uh, additional uh, energy, then it doesn't make much difference in terms of satiety. But once you get up to, uh, to, to higher levels, let's say beyond the size of a Big Mac, then it starts to make a difference. Because the more protein you consume, um, the more full you're likely to feel. So there are, you know, there, there are diets that advise people to consume large amounts of protein because there's this satiety associated with consuming consuming uh, large amounts of protein. Fat, however, generates only a very weak satiety signal. Carbohydrate, less weak, but that depends on the nature of the carbohydrate. If you're eating sugar, then that has a satiety uh, index which is not too much higher than fat. So you can consume a soft drink. I hope that's Diet Coke. Sorry, yeah. Sorry? <laughs> it is. It is, okay. Um, if you consume, if you consume a, a classic Coca-Cola with its huge amounts of sugar, your body would not recognize the sugar as, as dietary energy. It would give you very little satiety. The only satiety you get from drinking that is it's still in your stomach. Because, you know, because, because it's, it's stomach distension. The calories would not, be, would not be recognized. Okay, let's take ourselves to fast food. And what happens? Uh, a well-known brand of burger, uh, we know, has an energy content of about 1.5 megajoules. This well-known brand of burger, uh, consume that, uh, has the ideal composition for this would be a fat energy percent of about 30% and a protein energy percent of about 36%. But actually, that contains over 50% fat as energy and contains only about 60% of energy as protein. So the fat is sitting, sitting, sitting in the burger. What that means is that the satiety signal that goes with consuming that is actually very low. You eat one of those, you're ready for another one very, very easily. In terms of genetics and physiology, uh, there is a lot of, there are many, many genes associated with obesity. These genes broadly fall into, into four categories. The fourth category is unknown, and these are unknown because these are results of genome scanning, uh, which, which give you associations with obesity phenotypes, but you know, haven't been characterized in terms of the mechanism, but will. They'll fall into categories one, two, or three. Category one is appetite-regulating uh, genes. The second are energy metabolism genes. So these are things that are actually associated with uh, uh, with, with things that happen in the happen in the mitochondrion, and thirdly, uh, fat storage genes. So these are, are associated with the efficiency with which fat is 
that is stored or mobilized in the body. Yeah. As a swim pill, <coughs> could you not develop a, like a tablet that you could take and switch on your metabolism genes? Um, yeah, that's where that's where the industry is going. Um, but previous attempts at changing at changing metabolism haven't been able to take into account the complexity of the system. So, for example, in the 1970s, slimming tablets were largely amphetamines. So, as uh, one of our presenters on Wednesday at the Obesity Unit um, said, that there were women who were taking um, taking amphetamines um, for slimming uh, didn't do much about their weight because, of course, they speeded up, but then their appetite also increased. So, actually, separating out the different components of energy balance is, is, the, is, is a tricky part because if you change one piece, it will change something else. I mean, they, she said that actually women got really good at you know, hoovering their houses, so they're very tidy houses because they're on speed doing, uh, you know, um, trying to lose weight. And, and the, the most important outcome is that their house, houses were tidy. And of course, they're probably, a number of them would also be addicted. That was another issue. Um, some, of these, some of these medications also have, have side effects. I mean, those fenfluramine uh, and dexfenfluramine and fenfluramine dropped because it made some people psychotic. Because you're actually messing with the brain with some of these with some of these things. Because appetite genes are all to do largely to do with hypothalamus and you know and uh, and, and and some to to other parts of the brain. So it's yeah. I mean, there's been something like 30 years research into possible pharmacological treatment for obesity, and uh, that could be another talk. Anyway, <coughs> mechanisms that have been worked out for uh, energy balance. This is the most elegant, and this is all. This is summarised in a paper that I've written with Hayley Lofink, who's a DPhil student, uh, with me, and uh, and it's quite elegant. It's very beautiful because it's got arrows, lots of arrows, arrows going up, arrows going down. Um, so when you when you when you're hungry, your leptin levels drop, your insulin levels drop, uh, uh, your glucuronide peptides increase, and neuropeptide Y uh, drops, and so you stimulate the production of. Of, of neuropeptide Y in the hypothalamus and and uh, and uh, neuropeptide Y and and, and uh, um, other uh, other factors influence uh, um, neurons uh, expressing melan expressing the melanocortin four receptor then um, potentially switch off reproduction increase appetite and reduce energy expenditure all the things that should happen this is all very elegant and with overfeeding. Lo and behold, the arrows all go in the other direction. But this only explains a maximum of 4% of all obesity. So this is really, uh, this model doesn't explain uh, population obesity. So the best model we have doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't give us very much in terms, of, uh, in terms of understanding overall obesity levels. <coughs> One problem is <coughs> that that mechanism is largely a gut, pancreas, adipose tissue signaling to the hypothalamus. So you might say this is signaling to the primitive brain. Those mechanisms can be worked out in a reasonably straightforward way. Complex though it is, they can be worked out in a re relatively straightforward way. But the problem is that we can very easily overeat in respect, in relation to a range of other kinds of signals. Social signals, palatability cues, smell, you know, all kinds of things, which are um, 
<coughs> which are uh, higher brain signals. So while we've got the hypothalamus sitting at the core of this, sort of playing with the you know, energy balance, influencing appetite in relation to, to food coming in, you know, you've got the frontal cor cortex kicking in, uh, the hippocampus, um, uh, dorsomedial thalamus, all of these things are, um, have the potential to override that central mechanism. So we have internal states of fuel availability. We know when we're hungry. We definitely know when we're hungry. We usually know when we've had enough to eat. So we have, you know, we get food, we eat it, we metabolize it, some of it goes into body fat. If we don't have enough, then we'll mobilize some body fat, and all of this is all, all very beautiful. And these are short-term signals from the gastrointestinal tract, from, from, the, you know, from, from, from the adipose tissue, from pancreas, and so on, that maintain this internal state. But then, on top of that, you've got these non-homeostatic mechanisms which are, you know, everyday realities, like the availability and cost of food. You might know what you want to eat, but you might not be able to afford it. You have palatability. You have feed-forward reflexes. Feed-forward reflex is imagining what you're going to have for lunch. That is, you have an anticipation of what a food is going to be like. You know you're going to walk past this famous chain of burgers, and before you go in, you say, closer, the lights go flashing, the colors engage you, the smell engages you, you know exactly what that first mouthful is going to taste like. If it doesn't taste like that, it's wrong. You know what it's going to taste like. If you love Heinz tomato ketchup, then no other brand will do, because it has a particular taste that is slightly different from other types of tomato ketchup, but it's exactly the one you want. So all of these things overwhelm this homeostatic mechanism. If you are a sad and lonely bastard who never talks to people and thinks of food as fuel and doesn't have very much money, writes their essays by candlelight, never talks to anybody, then you could avoid most of these cognitive environmental factors. Well, there's a big literature on food and mood. And uh, the non-homeostatic part of this, if I can move to the, next, uh, to, the next, to the next picture, that little piece is the homeostatic bit in the middle. But when you change, when you change what's happening in the center and you consume um, foods with, a lot, in this case, a lot of sugar, there's a very specific issue. Um, that is, food is addictive, and it uses the uh, opioid, uh, uh, re the reward mechanism. And uh, the, uh, the opioid re reward system is a common one to many, uh, to, to, to many things. In the, case, in the case of sugar, I'll come on to this, this presently, um, consuming sugar gives you a similar kind but lower level of dopamine release. So that means that it has a physiological, hedonic um, impact. So you are, you are generating something that is similar in some ways to, 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 to using cocaine. I'll come on to that shortly. And there's a paper on the, on the reading list that will get onto that. Anyway, the complexity of all of this. This is the bit in the middle. And this is the big brain, the neocortex, which is responding to everything that's social. And of course, our social brain is totally engaged in social activities. And food is enmeshed in social activities. And so, you know, how do we unpiece that? As I said, you know, 
you're lonely, sitting in a garret with your candle, and, and, and can ignore social cues, then your, 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 your mechanism, your, your food balance mechanism, could be pretty well intact because you're just going to be using the, largely the hypothalamic. But, you know, if you're a fully socially engaged individual, it becomes increasingly, it is difficult. Because we live in obesogenic environments. Now, this is an old slide. Um, it shows a typical strip land, um, which has Wendy burgers, McDonald's, and then further down we have other kinds of fuel, um, Amoco and, and, and BP. So food is fuel. You fill your stomach, you fill your car, you keep on moving um, because you've, you know, you've motorized how things are. Here we've got a buffet, and here we've got kids watching television. Now the thing that is common to all of these is stimulation. But these are all stimuli. And they're stimuli that may result in lower physical activity, greater food consumption, or both combined in a, in, in, in a particular kind of complex. And they are embedded in everyday life. It is actually difficult to unlock yourself. We live very convenient lives. We want increasingly convenient lives. You know, if we behave as good primates, good hominids, we want to make our lives ever more efficient, and we've succeeded in doing that. If anything, the last 50 years or so show an overshoot in that ability to be able to capture energy, use it, make work easier, make work physically less demanding, and make our lives fuller and richer in terms of external stimuli. We've done it all, and now we're getting obese. At least some people are. But obesity isn't just down to, down to food, as I said and physical activity. Just dietary intake data for a number of countries is instructive, and I've just chosen USA, Germany, UK, and Poland. If you look at Germany and the United States between 1961 and the year 2001, both countries have had a significant increase in the average number of calories that people consume. So you can say, well, there is a big additional energy load to, to uh, you know, to, in, as an explanation for emerging obesity. But if we look at the UK and we look at Poland, both countries, you know, the UK has got the highest levels of obesity in Europe, and Poland has got the same sort of uh, rapid acceleration in childhood obesity as, uh, uh, as the UK, which, is, which, is, which has been uh, across the last 10, uh, 15 years. And there, there's been a minimal increase in dietary energy. So it's not just down to, down to food consumption. Obesogenic environments are easy to characterize. The types of food eaten. Now, this is an issue. High fat, palatable, and fast foods. You can overcome the satiety signals if you consume high fat, high fat foods. We've also, from the metabolomics literature, we also know that certain kinds of foods will result in a certain kind of gut bioflora that will increase the digestibility of fats in the diet. So not all fat is equal at the point of entry into the mouth, even. So that's one explanation, potentially, why it seems some people can be eating the same number of calories, but the nature of those calories is important. What they come from is important. We have a food industry, and do not knock the food industry. They produce cheap food, freely available, not freely, but cheaply available, um, and uh, they're able to um, feed large populations in industrial societies. The food is safe. Don't knock that. Uh, 
but there are certain things that they promote that uh, are, <coughs> are less than healthy. Decline in physical activity, cars, work, leisure, computers, you know, everywhere. We know that. We know. We know. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the interaction. Modern lives, everybody's in a hurry, everybody has little time, it would seem. We have television. Everybody's tired all the time. Everybody's seeking stimulation. So there's a bunch of contradictions. Um, there's a book I could recommend, which is not on the reading list, which is by Peter Wybrow. W H Y B R O W, and it's called American Mania. And uh, the subtitle of that is Why More Is Not Enough. And a good read, a good read, because once having solved all the problems, there's never enough. There's never enough. And food fits into this, this general picture of there never being enough. Okay, obesogenic environments are not just the US and not just the UK. Uh, they're everywhere. Okay, this is just, just, this is just a, a quick tour through obesogenic environments that I have seen. Very, very quick. This is Mexico, Mexico City. Just some adolescents sitting at a, a fast food store um, where you have uh, tortas, gordillas, tacos, quesadillas, and these are examples of them in case you don't know what they are. Uh, and uh, the notion of, of burgers as being, as being the archetype of food fast food is wrong when you start to look at other places because you know there's a whole range of fast foods in Mexico that don't necessarily conform to that. In fact, Mexico contributes to US fast food. Um, but these themselves are, are hybrids. You know, they've emerged um, um, through, uh, uh, through, the, through you know, the food industry in, in, in Mexico in the, in, in the 1920s that was starting to produce different kinds of, different kinds of fast foods. But Again, characterized by you know, high fat, um, high, high energy. India, more conventionally, this is Calcutta. Um, this is Calcutta last year. And uh, Pizza Hut and KFC are clearly there. But an interesting phenomenon, um, which uh, is clearly apparent here, US, Canada, Australia, wherever, uh, that, you know, as you're driving, you do your shopping. In the UK, you have a major chain of, of supermarkets that has created a new niche um, or reinvented an old niche, which is the, the corner store, except the food now appears as a little Tesco um, adjacent to a petrol station, service station. In India, this is again in Calcutta. In-out convenience stores from Barrett Petroleum now shop and do much more while you fuel. So they're introducing the idea to India. And not just India, to, to, you know, to, to Brazil, to Mexico, and so on. People get cars, then you open a new way of doing things. And, of course, it will be locally, locally different, but the idea is very, very much the same. Sell people stuff as they stop in a particular way, and, you, and you, you're selling them, selling them convenience. Again, <clears throat> fast food. India's got a lot. Okay. What you can buy in one shop, you can buy pizzas, sandwiches... Um, Tibetan momos, rolls, talis from South India, paratas from, 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 from North India, pastries, cakes, shakes, coffee. You get everything in one place, under one roof. Uh, so, and India has a long tradition of fast foods. And again, and, and, it, and it is energy dense. And it is sugar dense, some of it. Um, so we shouldn't just think about the one stereotype. This is, this is a fast food place, again in Calcutta, um, which sells every variety of Indian food under one roof. 
You go and look at the menu, you pay your money, and then you can, you know, you can have a, a tali from South India, then a jalabi from North India, and, uh, you know, you can, you can mix and match. You can even, you know, have, a, you know, have a tali, then go for a pizza, you know, then have a milkshake, and then finish off with, with, with some gulab, you know, uh, ras gulab, and, and, and you can you could mix, mix and match, match your nationalities in one place. That's Calcutta. We know about food courts everywhere else. It's not... You know, a, a Western phenomenon. Everywhere there's modernization, and this is, this is happening. Okay, the Pacific should be free of all of this, but it's a long way away from anywhere, as we know. But this is just a picture I took of uh, in, in, in one particular trade store on, uh, on Rarotonga. Rarotonga is four hours' flight south of Honolulu, um, four hours' flight uh, uh, northeast of um, Auckland, New Zealand. So it's this. And between that, there's an awful lot of ocean, like nothing. And Rarotonga itself is an island of, of diameter, of, of, of a radius of uh, no, diameter of 26 kilometers, tiny island. So even there, you know, Cadbury's dairy milk, you know, sandwiches, donuts, and all the rest of it. And that's a sculpture by uh, Jacob Dinos Chapman. Uh, he was a young British artist, um, and uh, it says everything so far. Physical activity. It's important. The relationship between physical activity and, and obesity. Uh, at a most broad ec ecological level, um, the more people exercise, the less body fat they have. And there the answer is that through increased physical activity, you may want to consume as much as you consume, but the increased physical activity actually you know, gets rid of additional energy. So you're actually operating in energy balance at a, at a higher level of intake and expenditure. So you can be at a low level of intake and expenditure, and you can very easily misregulate, or you can be at a higher level of energy expenditure, and it's more difficult to, to, to misregulate. So physical activity you know, has... Uh, protective fat issues, not just in terms of burning energy, but also in terms of in terms of in terms of appetite. Okay, this is Banksy. Who's heard of Banksy? Yay! Okay. I love Banksy. Um, I can't remember what the Parisian equivalent of it of, of Banksy is, but but the Parisian equivalent actually predated Banksy. So just say Lara. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, here's here's Banksy with a flying the flag. Uh, <laughs> And just to, just to elucidate the issue of physical activity in so-called dangerous areas, graffiti and obesity, there's a clear relationship. More graffiti areas have more obese people. People have less physical activity. Now, that's not the real relationship. Graffiti does not make people obese. But perceptions of safety may do. They may reduce physical activity. For example, if children in the U.S. live in a dangerous neighborhood, their parents are less likely to send them out into the streets to play. Um, parents, because they're afraid of, of, of their children being abducted, whatever, will drive them to school, even if they're relatively short distances. In Japan, to the present day, kids have to walk to school, even if it's a two-mile walk, from the age of six years when they start school. They, kids will walk together. These issues of safety are very important. This may be true also in Korea, but I don't know. But you know, these make the use of the environment you know, socially, socially constructed. 
Transportation. You know, in the present day, they're saying that people should take public transport as a measure against obesity, because at least if you take public transport, you have to walk as far as the bus, and then you have to walk from the bus to where you're going, as opposed to getting into a motor car where you walk out of the front door, you drop yourself in the seat, you get out of the other end, and you walk 50 metres or less. Uh, UK and elsewhere, transport. In the 1950s, um, the car represented only about a quarter of all modes of transport. Now it represents nearly 90% of modes of transport. People get in the motor car. Having a decent public transportation system is something that will reduce the obesogenic environment because people actually need to move their bodies to be able to, to, be able to do that. Okay, finally to behavior. And I'm going to focus on... on, on, on on a couple of things, clothing and eating, okay, and aspiration, because we all have aspirations. Some have more than others. In terms of clothing and obesity, it's struck me and others that the $2 burger, the $1 burger and the $5 t-shirt are really representing the same global phenomenon. You can wear Okay, yeah, this is Melbourne, Australia. These, uh, these are people, just, kids just crossing the road. Uh, wearing a T-shirt means that you do not really have to respond. You, you do, the, your clothing doesn't really give you a cue as to your body and your, uh, your body size. So you could wear a big T-shirt and really, you know, you're not given an environmental cue from your, cue from, cue from your clothing. And the way that clothing is fashioned really does have a very clear socioeconomic edge to it. Fashion favors the tall and the thin. If you have clothing uh, which, is, which is cheap and disposable, then you can increase in body size and dump it and move on to the next t-shirt bags. If you have clothing that is valued, as it was largely across society even 50 years ago, then, and you know, there's only one place in Oxford where you can actually you can take clothing to be repaired now. And apparently, this was very common. You, you could take clothing to a place to be adjusted and mended, put patches on your, on, on your jacket, the mend holes, and all the rest of it. Um, and there's only one left because people can throw their clothes away. You go to Primark, buy something, dump it even the next day uh, because, it, because it's so cheap. The fact that clothing. Uh, is cheap and often poorly fashioned itself has an impact on bodily cues. The environment starts within a few millimeters of your body. And this is one thing that is largely, largely ignored. This is Bruce Nauman, who's another artist. I'm sorry, I'm throwing them all out here today. Uh, he's uh, based in New York State. I think he's Californian. Um, he does wonderful neon sculptures. And just some words in this one, human hope, need, human dream, desire. Okay, need and desire, those are two different things. You might need to eat potatoes, if that's the culturally appropriate food. But you might actually desire, and that's a very often form of potato I could find, to my eyes anyway, uh, which is chocolate coated potato chips. They're not that bad. Are they? <laughs> okay, tell us about them so we all want them. No. <laughs> no, I'm joking, really, I'm joking. Okay. I've tried them. Okay. 
Okay. The basic potato is fine. But then what we actually eat is influenced by taste, smell, texture, sight, variety, sensory-specific satiety, different kinds of foods. And these are all modulated through internal signals, cognitive factors, beliefs about food, what we expect the food to do, advertising, and so on. So food behavior. At any given time, what we eat is pretty stable. We have a clutch of dietary habits that are reasonably consistent. Um, but they are influenced by social contexts of eating and the expectations from those foods. Any deviation from norms of social contexts, deviations from expectations from foods, our dietary habits can get derailed very easily. Who's been, who's travelled a long distance, eaten airport food, got to the other end, find they're eating food they never would have expected to eat, and it's not particularly healthy? Yeah. There's, there's got to be a few. You know, you move out of your usual circles, your usual social circumstances, and suddenly all kinds of things get derailed. You're eating foods you never expect to eat, um, and you don't know why you hate yourself for doing it, but this is what you're doing. And it happens, it happens to a lot of people. So these food preferences, this stability can easily be, de easily be derailed. And modern life contributes to that potential for derailing. Okay, the amounts of food that we eat can be determined by who, how many people we're eating with. You know, you can sit down and eat your fill, then one other person comes and joins you at the lunch table, and they're eating, and you say, oh, okay, I've got to get myself a food, and I'll stay here and just carry on talking. Just get a little bit more to eat, and I'll carry on talking. You won't just say, I've had enough to eat. You've got to be strong-willed to do that. Of course, people do, and people can. Television viewing, distraction feeding, is a very, very easy thing to do. You're sitting there, and before you know it, the whole bag of nachos is gone. The whole bag of chips is gone. And, you know, you don't know where. You don't even know what you've been doing. I mean, revising for exams, for Christ's sake. Just have a bag of, you know, a, 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 a packet of biscuits next to you while you're, while you're doing it. You won't notice you've eaten them. Let's go. I'm driving, same thing. I'm eating. I'm distracting myself. I'm stopping myself being bored. I'm filling my mouth. And, you know, it's all wrong. Uh, Claude Fischler in France uh, coined the term gastroanomie to represent that kind of phenomenon. That we're not eating as the French would eat, which is eating socially. We're eating in a distracted fashion on our own in separate spaces. With portion size, is another issue. We're very blind to portion size. If a portion is this big, we'll consume it. If it's this big, we'll consume it. Children are blind to that. This is what's happened to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola now has Coca-Cola Classic, which is coming down in size. But you can if you can sell more, <coughs> then why not? And people will consume more. Very easy to do. If that's what's in the store, that's what you buy. This is a burger. Look, you know, burgers have increased from 1957 to, to, to the, the year 2002 sixfold. Large portions, you have a large portion of chocolate bars or chips, potato chips, or a cola. Buy any of these big ones, you're getting more than your daily need for dietary energy. What's out there is huge, and it seems to be good value, but we can very easily consume because we think it's good value. Okay. Okay, just the last one. This is the cocaine fix. Okay, this is what sugar does. Sugar gives a dopamine response, which is about one quarter of that of cocaine. Saccharin gives almost no dopamine response. 
So sugar is re- follows similar um, midbrain uses similar midbrain mechanism sweetness um, in stimulating the mood in the brain. It's smaller than cocaine, but it's certainly there. So uh, you can easily see why there could be a mechanism for 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 for, for sugar and and food addiction. Thank you for your tolerance.